0: Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, This Week in Medicine, we will be discussing First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. A Phase 3, Randomized, Controlled Trial of ResMetaram in NASH with Liver Fibrosis Background Non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, is a progressive liver disease with no approved treatment. ResMetaram is an oral, liver-directed, thyroid hormone receptor beta-selective agonist in development for the treatment of NASH with liver fibrosis. Methods We are conducting an ongoing phase 3 trial involving adults with biopsy-confirmed NASH and a fibrosis stage of F1b, F2 or F3, stages range from F0, no fibrosis, to F4, cirrhosis. Patients were randomly assigned in a 1 to 1 colon 1 ratio to receive once daily ROM at a dose of 80 mg or 100 mg or placebo. The two primary endpoints at week 52 were NASH resolution, including a reduction in the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD, activity score by greater than or equal to 2 points, scores range from 0 to 8, with higher scores indicating more severe disease, with no worsening of fibrosis, and an improvement, reduction, in fibrosis by at least one stage with no worsening of the NAFLD activity score. Results. Overall, 966 patients formed the primary analysis population, 322 in the 80 mg resmetaram group, 323 in the 100 mg resmetaram group, and 321 in the placebo group. NASH resolution with no worsening of fibrosis was achieved in 25.9% of the patients in the 80 mg resmetaram group and 29.9% of those in the 100 mg resmetaram group, as compared with 9.7% of those in the placebo group p less than 0.001 for both comparisons with placebo. Fibrosis improvement by at least one stage with no worsening of the NAFLD activity score was achieved in 24.2% of the patients in the 80mg resmetaram group and 25.9% of those in the 100mg resmetaram group, as compared with 14.2% of those in the placebo group, p less than 0.001 for both comparisons with placebo. The change in low-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels from baseline to week 24 was minus 13.6% in the 80mg resmetaram group and minus 16.3% in the 100mg resmetaram group, as compared with 0.1% in the placebo group, p less than 0.001 for both comparisons with placebo. Diarrhea and nausea were more frequent with resmetaram than with placebo. The incidence of serious adverse events was similar across trial groups, 10.9% in the 80 milligram resmetaram group, 12.7% in the 100 milligram resmetaram group, and 11.5% in the placebo group. Conclusions Both the 80 milligram dose and the 100 milligram dose of resmetaram were superior to placebo with respect to NASH resolution and improvement in liver fibrosis by at least one stage. An oral interleukin-23 receptor antagonist peptide for plaque psoriasis. Background The use of monoclonal antibodies has changed the treatment of several immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, including psoriasis. However, these large proteins must be administered by injection. JNJ 77242113 is a novel. Orally administered interleukin-23 receptor antagonist peptide that selectively blocks interleukin-23 signaling and downstream cytokine production. Methods. In this phase 2 dose-finding trial, we randomly assigned patients with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis to receive jnj 77,242,113 at a dose of 25 mg once daily, 25 mg twice daily, 50 mg once daily, 100 mg once daily, or 100 mg twice daily or placebo for 16 weeks. The primary endpoint was a reduction from baseline of at least 75% in the psoriasis area and severity index, PASI, score, PASI 75 response, PASI scores range from 0 to 72, with higher scores indicating greater extent or severity of psoriasis, at week 16. Results A total of 255 patients underwent randomization. The mean POSI score at baseline was 19.1. The mean duration of psoriasis was 18.2 years, and 78% of the patients across all the trial groups had previously received systemic treatments. At week 16, the percentages of patients with a POSI 75 response were higher among those in the J&J 77,242,113 groups, 37%, 51%, 58%, 65%, and 79% in the 25 mg once daily, 25 mg twice daily, 50 mg once daily, 100 mg once daily, and 100 mg twice daily groups, respectively, then among those in the placebo group, 9%, a finding that showed a significant dose-response relationship, p less than 0.001. The most common adverse events included coronavirus disease 2019, in 12% of the patients in the placebo group, and in 11% of those across the JNJ and 77,242,113 dose groups and nasopharyngitis, in 5% and 7%, respectively. The percentages of patients who had at least one adverse event were similar in the combined JNJ and 77,242,113 dose group, 52%, and the placebo group, 51%. There was no evidence of a dose related increase in adverse events across the JNJ 77,242,113 dose groups. Conclusions After 16 weeks of once or twice daily oral administration, Treatment with the interleukin 23 receptor antagonist peptide JNJ77242113 showed greater efficacy than placebo in patients with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. <music> Next article from Journal of American Medical Association pixaband to prevent recurrence after cryptogenic stroke in patients with atrial cardiopathy. The Arcadia Randomized Clinical Trial Importance atrial cardiopathy is associated with stroke in the absence of clinically apparent atrial fibrillation. It is unknown whether anticoagulation, which has proven benefit in atrial fibrillation, prevents stroke in patients with atrial cardiopathy and no atrial fibrillation. Objective to compare anticoagulation versus antiplatelet therapy for secondary stroke prevention in patients with cryptogenic stroke and evidence of atrial cardiopathy. Design, setting, and participants' multi-center, double-blind, phase 3 randomized clinical trial of 1,015 participants with cryptogenic stroke and evidence of atrial cardiopathy, defined as P-wave terminal force greater than 5,000 V times MS in electrocardiogram lead V1, serum n terminal probe b type natriuretic peptide level greater than 250 pg per milliliter, or left atrial diameter index of 3 cm m2 or greater on echocardiogram. Participants had no evidence of atrial fibrillation at the time of randomization. Enrollment and follow-up occurred from February 1, 2018, through February 28, 2023, at 185 sites in the National Institutes of Health Stroke Net and the Canadian Stroke Consortium. Interventions of Pixaban, 5 mg or 2.5 mg, twice daily, and equals 507, versus aspirin, 81 mg, once daily, and equals 508. Main outcomes and measures The primary efficacy outcome in a time to event analysis was recurrent stroke. All participants, including those diagnosed with atrial fibrillation after randomization, were analyzed according to the groups to which they were randomized. The primary safety outcomes were symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage and other major hemorrhage. Results with 1,015 of the target 1,100 participants enrolled and mean follow-up of 1.8 years, the trial was stopped for futility after a planned interim analysis. The mean, SD, age of participants was 68.0, 11.0, years, 54.3% were female, and 87.5% completed the full duration of follow-up. Recurrent stroke occurred in 40 patients in the apixaban group, annualized rate, 4.4%, and 40 patients in the aspirin group, annualized rate, 4.4%, hazard ratio, 1.00, 95% C, 0.64 to 1.55. Symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage occurred in 0 patients taking apixaban and 7 patients taking aspirin, annualized rate, 1.1%. Other major hemorrhages occurred in 5 patients taking apixaban, annualized rate, 0.7%, and 5 patients taking aspirin, annualized rate, 0.8%, hazard ratio, 1.02, 95% C, 0.29 to 3.52. Conclusions and relevance in patients with cryptogenic stroke and evidence of atrial cardiopathy without atrial fibrillation, apixaban did not significantly reduce recurrent stroke risk compared with aspirin. Methylpridnisolone is adjunct to endovascular thrombectomy for large vessel occlusion stroke. The Marvel Randomized Clinical Trial. Importance It is uncertain whether intravenous methylprednisolone improves outcomes for patients with acute ischemic stroke due to large vessel occlusion, LVO, undergoing endovascular thrombectomy. Objective to assess the efficacy and adverse events of adjunctive intravenous low-dose methylprednisolone to endovascular thrombectomy for acute ischemic stroke secondary to LVO. Design, setting, and participants this investigator-initiated, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial was implemented at 82 hospitals in China, enrolling 1,680 patients with stroke and proximal intracranial LVO presenting within 24 hours of time last known to be well. Recruitment took place between February 9, 2022, and June 30, 2023, with a final follow-up on September 30, 2023. Interventions eligible patients were randomly assigned to intravenous methylprednisolone n equals 839 at 2 mg/kg/d or placebo n equals 841 for three days adjunctive to endovascular thrombectomy. Main outcomes and measures: The primary efficacy outcome was disability level at 90 days, as measured by the overall distribution of the modified Rankin Scale scores (range, 0, no symptoms; to 6, death). The primary safety outcomes included mortality at 90 days and the incidence of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage within 48 hours. Results among 1,608 patients randomized, median age, 69 years, 727 female, 43.3%, 1,673, 99.6%, completed the trial. The median 90-day modified Rankin scale score was 3, IQR, 1-5, to 5, in the methylprednisolone group versus 3, IQR, 1 to 6, in the placebo group, adjusted generalized odds ratio for a lower level of disability, 1.10, 95% C, 0.96 to 1.25, P equals 0.17. In the methylprednisolone group, there was a lower mortality rate, 23.2% versus 28.5%, adjusted risk ratio, 0.84, C, 0.71 to 0.98, P equals 0.03, and a lower rate of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, 8.6% versus 11.7%, adjusted risk ratio, 0.74, 95% C, 0.55 to 0.99, P equals 0.04, compared with placebo. Conclusions and relevance among patients with acute ischemic stroke due to LVO undergoing endovascular thrombectomy, adjunctive methylprednisolone added to endovascular thrombectomy did not significantly improve the degree of overall disability. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine Reducing care overuse in older patients using professional norms and accountability. A cluster randomized controlled trial. Background Effective strategies are needed to curtail overuse that may lead to harm. Objective To evaluate the effects of clinician decision support, redirecting attention to harms and engaging social and reputational concerns on overuse in older primary care patients. Design 18 month, single blind, Pragmatic, cluster randomized trial, constrained randomization. ClinicalTrials.gov, NCT 04289753 setting. 60 primary care internal medicine, family medicine, and geriatrics practices within a health system from September 1, 2020 to February 28, 2022. Participants 371 primary care clinicians and their older adult patients from participating practices. Intervention. Behavioral science-informed, point-of-care, clinical decision support tools plus briefcase-based education addressing the three primary clinical outcomes, 187 clinicians from 30 clinics, were compared with briefcase-based education alone, 187 clinicians from 30 clinics. Decision support was designed to increase salience of potential harms, convey social norms, and promote accountability. Measurements Prostate-specific antigen, PSA, testing in men aged 76 years and older without previous prostate cancer, urine testing for nonspecific reasons in women aged 65 years and older, and over-treatment of diabetes with hypoglycemic agents in patients aged 75 years and older in hemoglobin A1C, PO1C, less than 7%. Results At randomization, mean clinic annual PSA testing, unspecified urine testing, and diabetes over-treatment rates were 24.9, 23.9, and 16.8 per 100 patients, respectively. After 18 months of intervention, the intervention group had lower adjusted difference in differences in annual rates of PSA testing, minus 8.7, 95% C, minus 10.2 to minus 7.1, unspecified urine testing, minus 5.5, C, minus 7.0 to minus 3.6, and diabetes over-treatment, minus 1.4, c, minus 2.9 to minus 0.03, compared with education only. Safety measures did not show increased emergency care related to urinary tract infections or hyperglycemia. ho one c greater than 9.0% was more common with the intervention among previously overtreated diabetes patients, adjusted difference in differences, 0. 0.47 per 100 patients, 95% c, 0.04 to 1.20. Limitation A single health system limits generalizability, electronic health data limitability to differentiate between overtesting and underdocumentation. Conclusion Decision support designed to increase clinicians' attention to possible harms, social norms, and reputational concerns reduced unspecified testing compared with offering traditional case based education alone. Small decreases in diabetes over treatment may also result in higher rates of uncontrolled diabetes. (music) Trends in psychological distress and outpatient mental health care of adults during the COVID-19 era. Background In addition to the physical disease burden of the COVID-19 pandemic, concern exists over its adverse mental health effects. Objective. To characterize trends in psychological distress and outpatient mental health care among U.S. adults from 2018 to 2021 and to describe patterns of in-person, telephone, and video outpatient mental health care. Design. Cross-sectional nationally representative survey of non-institutionalized adults. Setting. United States participants adults included in the medical expenditure panel survey household component 2018 to 2021 n equals 86658 measurements psychological distress was measured with the kessler 6 scale range of 0 to 24 with higher scores indicating more severe distress with a score of 13 or higher defined as serious psychological distress 1 to 12 is less serious distress and zero is no distress. Outpatient mental health care use was measured via computer-assisted personal interviews. Results Between 2018 and 2021, the rate of serious psychological distress among adults increased from 3.5% to 4.2%. Although the rate of outpatient mental health care increased from 11.2% to 12.4% overall, the rate decreased from 46.5% to 40.4% among adults with serious psychological distress. When age, sex, and distress were controlled for, a significant increase in outpatient mental health care was observed for young adults, aged 18 to 44 years, but not middle-aged, aged 45 to 64 years, and older, aged more than 65 years, adults and for employed adults but not unemployed adults. In 2021, 33.4% of mental health outpatients received at least one video visit, including a disproportionate percentage of young, college-educated, higher-income, employed, and urban adults. Limitation Information about outpatient mental health service modality, in-person, video, telephone, was first fully available in the 2021 survey. Conclusion These trends and patterns underscore the persistent challenges of connecting older adults unemployed persons, and seriously distressed adults to outpatient mental health care and the difficulties faced by older, less educated, lower-income, unemployed, and rural patients in accessing outpatient mental health care via video. Next article from Nature Medicine. Reductions in smoking due to ratification of the Framework Convention for Tobacco Control in 171 countries. Smoking globally kills over half of long-term smokers and causes about 7 million annual deaths. The World Health Organization Framework Convention for Tobacco Control, FCTC, is the main global policy strategy to combat smoking, but its effectiveness is uncertain. Our interrupted time series analyzes compared before and after FCTC trends in the numbers and prevalence of smokers below the age of 25 years, when smoking initiation occurs, and during which response to interventions is greatest, and on cessation at 45 to 59 years, when quitting probably occurs, in 170 countries, excluding China. Contrasting the 10 years after FCTC ratification with the income specific before FCTC trends, we observed cumulative decreases of 15.5%, 95% confidence interval equals minus 33.2 to minus 0.7, for the numbers of current smokers and decreases of minus 7.5%, 95% C equals minus 10.6 to minus 4.5, for the prevalence of smoking below age 25 years. The quit ratio, Comparing the numbers of former and ever smokers, at 45 to 59 years increased by 1.8%, 1.2 to 2.3, 10 years after FCTC ratification. Countries raising taxes by at least 10 percentage points concurrent with ratification observed steeper decreases in all three outcomes than countries that did not. Over a decade across 170 countries, the FCTC was associated with 24 million fewer young smokers and 2 million more quitters. Next article from British Medical Journal. Duration of cardiopulmonary resuscitation and outcomes for adults with in-hospital cardiac arrest, retrospective cohort study. Objective to quantify time-dependent probabilities of outcomes in patients after in-hospital cardiac arrest as a function of duration of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, defined as the interval between start of chest compression and the first return of spontaneous circulation or termination of resuscitation. Design Retrospective Cohort Study. Setting Multicenter Perspective in Hospital Cardiac Arrest Registry in the United States. Participants 348-996 adult patients, greater than or equal to 18 years, with an index in hospital cardiac arrest who received cardiopulmonary resuscitation from 2000 through 2021. Main Outcome Measures Survival to Hospital Discharge and Favorable Functional Outcome at Hospital Discharge, defined as a cerebral performance category score of 1, good cerebral performance, or 2, moderate cerebral disability. Time-dependent probabilities of subsequently surviving to hospital discharge or having favorable functional outcome if patients pending the first return of spontaneous circulation at each minute received further cardiopulmonary resuscitation beyond the time point were estimated, assuming that all decisions on termination of resuscitation were accurate, that is, all patients with termination of resuscitation would have invariably failed to survive if cardiopulmonary resuscitation had continued for a longer period of time. Results among 348,996 included patients, 233-551, 66.9%, achieve return of spontaneous circulation with a median interval of 7, interquartile range 3 to 13, minutes between start of chest compressions and first return of spontaneous circulation whereas 115-445, 33.1%, patients did not achieve return of spontaneous circulation with a median interval of 20, 14 to 30, minutes between start of chest compressions and termination of resuscitation. 78-799, 22.6%, patients survived a hospital discharge. The time-dependent probabilities of survival and favorable functional outcome among patients pending return of spontaneous circulation at 1 minute's duration of cardiopulmonary resuscitation were 22.0%, 75,645,343,866, and 15.1%, 49,769,328,771, respectively. The probabilities decreased over time and were less than 1% for survival at 39 minutes, and less than 1% for favorable functional outcome at 32 minutes duration of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Conclusions this analysis of a large multi-center registry of in-hospital cardiac arrests quantified the time-dependent probabilities of patients' outcomes in each minute of duration of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. The findings provide resuscitation teams, patients, and their surrogates with insights into the likelihood of favorable outcomes if patients pending the first return of spontaneous circulation continue to receive further cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Clinical effectiveness of an online supervised group physical and mental health rehabilitation program for adults with post-COVID-19 condition, regain study, multi-center randomized controlled trial. Objective to evaluate whether a structured online supervised group physical and mental health rehabilitation program can improve health-related quality of life compared with usual care in adults with post-COVID-19 condition, long COVID. Design pragmatic, multi-center, parallel group, Superiority Randomized Controlled Trial. Setting England and Wales, with home-based interventions delivered remotely online from a single trial hub. Participants 585 adults, 26 to 86 years, discharged from NHS hospitals at least three months previously after COVID-19 and with ongoing physical and or mental health sequelae, post-COVID-19 condition, randomized, 1 to 1.03. To receive the rehabilitation exercise and psychological support after COVID-19 infection regain intervention and equals 298 or usual care and equals 287. Main outcome measures the primary outcome was health-related quality of life using the patient reported outcomes measurement information system promise preference proper score at three months. Secondary outcomes measured at 3 6 and 12 months. Included promise subscores, depression, fatigue, sleep disturbance, pain interference, physical function, social roles/slash activities, and cognitive function, severity of post-traumatic stress disorder, general health, and adverse events. Results between January 2021 and July 2022, 39,697 people were invited to take part in the study, and 725 were contacted and eligible. 585 participants were randomized mean age was 56, standard deviation, SD 12, years, 52% were female participants, mean health-related quality of life promise proper score was 0.20, SD 0.17, and mean time from hospital discharge was 323, SD 144, days. Compared with usual care, the regain intervention led to improvements in health-related quality of life, adjusted mean difference in proper score 0.03, 95% confidence interval 0.01 to 0.05 p equals 0.02 at three months driven predominantly by greater improvements in the promise subscores for depression 1.39 0.06 to 2.71 p equals 0.04 fatigue 2.50 1.19 to 3.81 p less than 0.001 and pain interference 1.80, 0.50 to 3.11, p equals 0.01. Effects were sustained at 12 months, 0.03, 0.01 to 0.06, p equals 0.02. Of 21 serious adverse events, only one was possibly related to the regain intervention. In the intervention group, 141, 47%, participants fully adhered to the program, 117, 39 percent, partially adhered, and 40, 13 percent, did not receive the intervention. Conclusions in adults with post-COVID-19 condition, an online, home-based, supervised, group physical and mental health rehabilitation program was clinically effective at improving health-related quality of life at 3 and 12 months compared with usual care. Next article from Lancet. Cultural engagement and prevalence of pain in socially isolated older people, a longitudinal modified treatment policy approach. Background. It remains uncertain whether cultural engagement positively influences the reduction of pain risk, particularly depending on the social isolation status. The aim of this study was to examine the impact of cultural engagement on the reduction of pain prevalence over a six-year follow-up period among older people, particularly those experiencing different dimensions of social isolation. Methods This study was a prospective longitudinal study. We analyzed the English Longitudinal Study of Aging Cohort, consisting of 6,468 community dwelling adults aged greater than or equal to 50 years old who provided data in wave 6, 2012-2013, to 2013, 7, 2014-2015, 8, 2016-2017, and 9. 2018-2019. to 2019. Self-reported cultural engagement, going to museums, art galleries, exhibitions, the theater, concerts, or the opera, measured in waves 6-8 to eight was used as the exposure variable. Meanwhile self-reported moderate to severe pain in wave 9 was used as the outcome variable. Social isolation was considered in waves 6-8, to eight, and the possibility of effect modification was captured by assessing each component of the social isolation index, not married or cohabiting with a partner, fewer than monthly contact with children slash other immediate family slash friends, and not engaging in any organizations, religious groups, or committees. Findings? The estimated pain prevalence was 29.2%, 95% confidence interval, 28.1 to 30.3, reference, after adjusting for time variant, time invariant, and loss to follow-up factors cultural engagement led to a reduction in pain prevalence to 24.1 percent for all individuals representing a decrease of 5.1 percent 95 percent confidence interval 0.6 to 9.6 p-value 0.03 in older people who were not married or cohabiting cultural engagement resulted in a decrease in pain prevalence to 25.8 percent a reduction of 3.4 percent 95 percent confidence interval 0.4 to 6.4, p value 0.01. For those with less frequent contact with close family members, the pain prevalence decreased to 25.3%, a reduction of 3.9%, 95% confidence interval 0.2 to 7.6, p value 0.03. Meanwhile, other dimensions of social isolation did not show a significant reduction in pain prevalence. Interpretation Cultural engagement may help to reduce the risk of pain in socially isolated older adults. Those who were single or living alone and had less frequent contact with immediate family were particularly vulnerable. While cultural engagement might help certain socially isolated older people feel better, its effectiveness varies, highlighting the need for targeted interventions. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Long-term results of organ preservation in patients with rectal adenocarcinoma treated with total neoadjuvant therapy, the randomized phase 2 OPRA trial. To assess long-term risk of local tumor regrowth, we report updated organ preservation rate and oncologic outcomes of the OPRA trial, clinicaltrials.gov identifier, NCT 02008656. Patients with stage 2-3 rectal cancer were randomly assigned to receive induction chemotherapy followed by chemoradiation INCT-CRT, or chemoradiation followed by consolidation chemotherapy, CRT-CNCT. Patients who achieved a complete or near-complete response after finishing treatment were offered watch and wait, WW. Total mesorectal excision, TME, was recommended for those who achieved an incomplete response. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival, DFS. The secondary endpoint was TME-free survival. In total, 324 patients were randomly assigned, INCT-CRT, N equals 158, crt and equals 166. Median follow-up was 5.1 years. The 5-year DFS rates were 71%, 95% C, and 69%, 95% C, 62-77, for INCT-CRT and CRT-CNCT, respectively, P equals 0.68. TME-free survival was 39%, 95% C, 32-48, in the INCT-CRT group and 54%, 95% C, 46-62, in the CRT-CNCT group, P equals 0.012. Of 81 patients with regrowth, 94% occurred within 2 years and 99% occurred within 3 years. DFS was similar for patients who underwent TME after restaging, 64%, 95% C, 53-78 and patients in WW who underwent TME after regrowth, 64%, 95% C, 53-78. P equals 0.94. Updated analysis continues to show long-term organ preservation in half of the patients with rectal cancer treated with total neoadjuvant therapy. In patients who enter WW, most cases of tumor regrowth occur in the first two years. Next article from Journal of Hepatology. CD1-D protects against hepatocyte apoptosis and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Hepatocyte apoptosis, a well-defined form of cell death in non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, is considered the primary cause of liver inflammation and fibrosis. However, the mechanisms underlying the regulation of hepatocyte apoptosis in NASH remain largely unclear. We explored the anti-apoptotic effect of hepatocyte CD1-D in NASH. Methods Hepatocyte CD1D expression was analyzed in patients with NASH and mouse models. Hepatocyte-specific gene overexpression or knockdown and anti-CD1D crosslinking were used to investigate the anti apoptotic effect of hepatocyte CD1D on lipotoxicity, FOS and cancanavalin, Kona, mediated liver injuries. A high-fat diet, a methionine-choline deficient diet, a FAS agonist, and Kona were used to induce lipotoxic and or apoptotic liver injuries palmitic acid was used to mimic lipotoxicity-induced apoptosis in vitro. Results We identified a dramatic decrease in CD1D expression in hepatocytes of patients with NASH and mouse models. Hepatocyte-specific CD1D overexpression and knockdown experiments collectively demonstrated that hepatocyte CD1D protected against hepatocyte apoptosis and alleviated hepatic inflammation and injuries in NASH mice. Furthermore, Decreased JAK2 STAT3 signaling was observed in NASH patient livers. Mechanistically, anti-CD1D d crosslinking on hepatocytes-induced tyrosine phosphorylation of the CD1D cytoplasmic tail, leading to the recruitment and phosphorylation of JAK2. Phosphorylated JAK2 activated STAT3 and subsequently reduced apoptosis in hepatocytes, which was associated with an increase in anti apoptotic effectors, BCLXL and MCL1, and a decrease in pro-aptotic effectors, cleaved caspase 3 Moreover, anti-CD1-D crosslinking effectively protected against FAS or KONA-mediated hepatocyte apoptosis and liver injury in mice. Conclusions Our study uncovered a previously unrecognized anti apoptotic cd one d CD1D-JAC2-STAT-3 axis in hepatocytes that conferred hepatoprotection and highlighted the potential of hepatocyte CD1D-directed therapy for liver injury and fibrosis in NASH, as well as in other liver diseases associated with hepatocyte apoptosis. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology Real-world efficacy of dupilumab in severe, treatment refractory, and fibrostenotic patients with eosinophilic esophagitis Background and aims Dupilumab is approved for treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis O, but real-world data are lacking. We aim to determine the real-world efficacy of dupilumab in patients with severe, treatment refractory, and fibrostenotic O. Methods we conducted a retrospective cohort study of O patients prescribed PILUMAB and who were treatment refractory to standard modalities. Patient demographics, clinical characteristics, O history, and procedural data, including the histologically worst, pre dupilumab and post dupilumab endoscopies, were extracted from medical records. Symptomatic, endoscopic, and histologic responses were assessed for the worst in pre endoscopies compared with the post dupilumab endoscopy. Results. We identified 46 patients with refractory O who were treated with dupilumab. Patients showed endoscopic, histologic, and symptomatic improvement on dupilumab compared with both the worst and the pre-dupalumab esophagogastrodudinoscopies. The peak eosinophil counts decreased markedly. And post-dupalumab histologic response rates were 80% and 57% for fewer than 15 eosinophils per high power field and 6 or fewer eosinophils per high power field, respectively, and the endoscopic reference score decreased from 5.01 to 1.89, p less than 0.001 for all. Although the proportion of strictures was stable, there was a significant increase in the predilation esophageal diameter from 13.9 to 16.0 mm. P less than 0.001. Global symptom improvement was reported in 91%. P less than 0.001. Conclusions In this population of severe, refractory, and fibrostenotic O patients, most achieved histologic, endoscopic, and symptom improvement with a median of six months of depilumab, and esophageal stricture diameter improved. Dupilumab has real world efficacy for a severe O population. Most of whom would not have qualified for prior clinical trials. <music> Next article from Blood. Three year follow up analysis of axicaptogene silalucell in relapsed slash refractory indolent non Hodgkin lymphoma, Zuma 5 Nilapu et al. report on long term outcomes from Zuma 5 a trial of axicaptogene silolucel, Axicell, and autologous anti-CD19 chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, for relapsed-slash-refractory follicular lymphoma, FL, and marginal zone lymphoma, MZL. At a median follow-up of 41.7 months, the overall response rates were 94% in FL and 77% in MZL, similar to what was seen in earlier reported results at 17.5 months. Median progression-free survival was 40.2 months in FL and not yet reached in MZL, median overall survival was not reached in either group. Clinical outcomes were worse following recent bendamustine therapy and for patients with high tumor volume. After three years, AxiCell demonstrates durable responses with few relapses beyond two years. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology Racial disparities in diagnosis and treatment of patients with dermatomyositis of different skin tones. Background Delays in the diagnosis and treatment of dermatological conditions in minorities are a well documented health disparity. We aim to determine if there was a delay in detection and treatment initiation for dermatomyositis, DM, and ameopathic dermatomyositis, ADM, in patients of different skin tones. Methods. Patients from Montefiore Medical Center who met the criteria for DM and ADM were included in this cohort study. Records were reviewed for date of first documented rash, creatine kinase levels, muscle weakness complaints, and date of first steroid or disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug initiation. The median number of days between rash documentation and therapy initiation was compared for patients of different races, including non-Hispanic white, non-Hispanic black, Hispanic and other, Asian and unknown. Data were compared in white versus non-white skin. Results 63 DM and 9 ADM patients met the inclusion criteria. There was a shorter time to treatment initiation in white versus non-white patients, with a median number of 8 days compared with 21 days, respectively, p equals 0.05. Kaplan-Meier curve showed prolonged time to diagnosis and treatment in all other races when compared with white patients, p equals 0.03. Discussion It took clinicians longer to diagnose and treat DM and ADM in patients of color. The trends observed emphasize the importance of increasing dermatology education of non-white skin to improve detection and treatment of DM and ADM and minimize health disparities. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. Anticitrulinated protein antibodies with multiple specificities ameliorate collagen antibody-induced arthritis in a time-dependent manner. Objective. Anticitrulinated protein antibodies, ASPAs, are highly specific for rheumatoid arthritis, RA, and have long been regarded as pathogenic. Despite substantial in vitro evidence supporting this claim, Reports investigating the pro-inflammatory effects of ASPAS in animal models of arthritis are rare and include mixed results. Here, we sequence the plasmoblast antibody repertoire of a patient with RA and functionally characterize the encoded ASPAS. Methods We express ASPAS from the antibody repertoire of a patient with RA and characterize their autoantigen specificities on antigen arrays and enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays. Binding affinities were estimated by biolayer interferometry. Select aspas, N equals 9, were tested in the collagen antibody-induced arthritis, CAIA, mouse model to evaluate their effects on joint inflammation. Results Recombinant aspas bound preferentially and with high affinity, nanomolar range, to citrullinated CIT, autoindogens, primarily histones and fibrinogen, and to auto-CIT peptide delarginine deuminase 4, PAD4. 4. ASPAs were grouped for in vivo testing based on their predominant CIT antigen specificities. Unexpectedly, injections of recombinant ASPAs significantly reduced paw thickness and arthritis severity in mice as compared with isotype-matched control antibodies, P less than or equal to 0.001. Bone erosion, synovitis, and cartilage damage were also significantly reduced, P less than or equal to 0.01. This amelioration of kayA was observed for all the ASPAS tested and was independent of CIT PAD4 and CIT fibrinogen specificities. Furthermore, disease amelioration was more prominent when ASPAS were injected at earlier stages of kaya than at later phases of the model. Conclusion Recombinant patient derived ASPAS ameliorated kaya Their anti inflammatory effects were more preventive than therapeutic. This study highlights a potential protective role for aspas in arthritis. <music> Next article from Circulation Long-term mortality in patients with severe hypercholesterolemia phenotype from a racial and ethnically diverse U.S. cohort. Background Tools for mortality prediction in patients with a severe hypercholesterolemia phenotype, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol greater than or equal to 190 mg DL, are limited and restricted to specific racial and ethnic cohorts. We sought to evaluate the predictors of long-term mortality in a large racially and ethnically diverse U.S. patient cohort with low-density lipoprotein cholesterol greater than or equal to 190 mg DL. Methods We conducted a retrospective analysis of all patients with a low-density lipoprotein cholesterol greater than or equal to 190 mg-dl seeking care at Montefiore from 2010 through 2020. Results. A total of 18740 patients were included, 37% non-Hispanic black, 30% Hispanic, 12% non-Hispanic white, and 2% non-Hispanic Asian patients. The mean age was 53.9 years, And median follow up was 5.2 years. Both high density lipoprotein cholesterol and body mass index extremes were associated with higher mortality in univariate analyses. In adjusted models, higher low density lipoprotein cholesterol and triglyceride levels were associated with an increased nine year mortality risk, adjusted hazard ratio, HR, 1.08, 95% C, 1.05 to 1.11, and 1.04. 95% C, 1.02 to 1.06, per 20 mg slash DL increase, respectively. Clinical factors associated with higher mortality included male sex, adjusted HR, 1.31, 95% C, 1.08 to 1.58, older age, adjusted HR, 1.19 per 5-year increase, 95% C, 1.15 to 1.23, hypertension, adjusted HR, 2.01, 95% C, 1.57 to 2.57, Chronic kidney disease, adjusted HR, 1.68, 95% C, 1.36 to 2.09, diabetes, adjusted HR, 1.79, 95% C, 1.50 to 2.15, heart failure, adjusted HR, 1.51, 95% C, 1.16 to 1.95, myocardial infarction, adjusted HR, 1.41, 95% C, 1.05 to 1.90, and body mass index less than 20 kg slash M2, adjusted HR, 3.36, 95% C, 2.29 to 4.93. A significant survival benefit was conferred by lipid lowering therapy, adjusted HR, 0.57, 95% C, 0.42 to 0.77. In the primary prevention group, high-density lipoprotein cholesterol less than 40 mg-dL was independently associated with higher mortality, adjusted HR, 1.49, 95% C, 1.06 to 2.09. Temporal trend analyzes showed a reduction in statin use over time, p less than 0.001. In the most recent time period, 2019-2020, 56% 2019-2020, to 2020, 56% of patients on primary prevention and 85% of those on secondary prevention were on statin therapy. Conclusions In a large, diverse cohort of U.S. patients with a severe hypercholesterolemia phenotype, we identified several patient characteristics associated with increased 9-year all-cause mortality and observed a decrease in statin use over time, in particular for primary prevention. Our results support efforts geared toward early recognition and consistent treatment for patients with severe hypercholesterolemia. <music> Next article from American College of Cardiology E-cigarettes versus varenicline and nicotine gum as aid to stop smoking. Study questions. Are electronic cigarettes, ECs, efficaciously superior to nicotine replacement therapy, NRT, or non-inferior to varenicline for smoking cessation? Methods The investigators used a randomized clinical trial, RCT, designed to compare smoking cessation rates among participants randomized to ECs, NRT, or varenicline. Participants were enrolled in seven sites in China, had to smoke greater than or equal to 10 cigarettes per day, and be motivated to quit. Those who were currently using smoking cessation medications or ECs were excluded. Participants randomized to ECs received 30 mg per mL nicotine salt for 2 weeks and 50 mg per mL after that, while those randomized to vareniclin received half a mg, once a day for 3 days, half a mg, twice a day for 4 days, and 1 mg, twice a day after that. Those randomized to NRT received nicotine chewing gum 2 mg, for smokers of less than or equal to 20 cigarettes day, or 4 mg, greater than 20 cigarettes day. All interventions were provided for 12 weeks accompanied by minimal behavioral support, i.e., an invitation to join a self-help internet forum. The primary outcome was sustained abstinence from smoking at 6 months, as validated by an expired air carbon monoxide reading, less than 8 parts million. Participants lost to follow-up were included as non-abstainers, Results A total of 1,068 participants, 33.5% female, mean age 33.9, standard deviation 3.1, years, were included in the study, of which 409, 38.3%, 409, 38.3%, and 250, 23.4%, participants were randomized to the EC, vareniclin, and NRT arms, respectively. The six-month biochemically validated abstinence rates were 15.7%, and equals 64, 14.2%, and equals 58, and 8.8%, and equals 22 in the E.C. varenicline, and NRT study arms, respectively. The quit rate in the E.C. arm was non-inferior to the varenicline arm, absolute risk reduction, 1.47%, 95% confidence interval, C., minus 1.41% to 4.34%, and higher than in the NRT arm, odds ratio, 1.92, 95% C, 1.15 to 3.21. Treatment adherence was similar in all study arms during the initial three months, but 257 participants, 62.8%, in the EC arm were still using ECs at six months, with no further use in the two other study arms. The most common adverse reactions were throat irritation, 32, 7.8%, and mouth irritation, 28, 6.9%, in the EC arm, nausea, 36, 8.8%, in the varenicline arm, and throat irritation, 20, 8.0%, and mouth irritation, 22, 8.8%, in the NRT arm. No serious adverse events were recorded. Conclusions The trial results showed that when all treatments were provided with minimal behavioral support, the efficacy of ECs was non-inferior to varenicline and superior to nicotine-chewing gum. From Journals of the American College of Cardiology Randomized Trial of Effect of Bariatric Surgery on Blood Pressure After 5 Years Background. Obesity represents a major obstacle for controlling hypertension, the leading risk factor for cardiovascular mortality. Objectives. The purpose of this study was to determine the long-term effects of bariatric surgery on hypertension control and remission. Methods. We conducted a randomized clinical trial with subjects with obesity grade 1 or 2 plus hypertension using at least two medications. We excluded subjects with previous cardiovascular events and poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. Subjects were assigned a RUNY gastric bypass, RYGB, combined with medical therapy, mount or mount alone. We reassessed the original primary outcome reduction of at least 30% of the total antihypertensive medications while maintaining blood pressure levels less than 140 90ths of a millimeter HG, at 5 years the main analysis followed the intention to treat principle. Results. A total of 100 subjects were included, 76% women, age 43.8 plus or minus 9.2 years, body mass index, 36.9 plus or minus 2.7 kg slash M2. At 5 years, body mass index was 36.40 kg slash M2, 95% C, 35.28 to 37.52 kg slash M2, for Mount and 28.01 kg slash M2, 95% C, 26.95 to 29.08 kg slash M2, for RIGB, P less than 0.001. Compared with Mount, RIGB promoted a significantly higher rate of number of medications reduction, 80.7% versus 13.7%, relative risk, 5.91, 95% C, 2.58 to 13.52, P less than 0.001, and the mean number of antihypertensive medications was 2.97, 95% C, 2.33 to 3.60, for Mount and 0.80, 95% C, 0.51 to 1.09, for RGB, P less than 0.001. The rates of hypertension remission were 2.4% versus 46.9%, relative risk, 19.66, 95% C, 2.74 to 141.09, P less than 0.001. Sensitivity analysis considering only completed cases revealed consistent results. Interestingly, the rate of apparent resistant hypertension was lower after RIGB, 0% versus 15.2%. Conclusions. Bariatric surgery represents an effective and durable strategy to control hypertension and related polypharmacy in subjects with obesity. (music) Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Prevalence, risk factors, and clinical and biochemical characteristics of alumtuzumab-induced Graves' disease. Objective. Atypical Graves' disease, GD, is a common complication in multiple sclerosis, MS, patients treated with alumtuzumab. We present epidemiological, clinical, and biochemical characteristics of alumtuzumab-induced GD. Methods. Retrospective follow-up study of MS patients treated with alumtuzumab from 2014 to 2020, including clinical course of GD, pregnancy outcome, and thyroid eye disease, TED. Results. We enrolled 183 of 203 patients, 90%, 68% women treated with alumtuzumab at four hospitals in Norway. 75, 41%, developed thyroid dysfunction, of whom 58 77% had GD. Median time from the first dose of alumtuzumab to GD diagnosis was 25 months, range 0 to 64. 24 of 58 GD patients, 41%, had alternating phases of hyper and hypothyroidism. Thyrotropin receptor antibodies became undetectable in 23 of 58, 40%, and they could discontinue antithyroid drug treatment after a median of 22, range 2 to 58, months. Conversely, 26, 44% had active disease during a median follow-up of 39 months (range, 11 to 72). Two patients, 3%, received definitive treatment with radioiodine; six, 10%, with thyroidectomy. Nine developed TED; 16%, seven had mild and two moderate to severe disease. Four patients completed pregnancy, all without maternal or fetal complications. Patients who developed GD had a lower frequency of new MS relapses and MRI lesions than those without. Conclusion GD is a very common complication of allumtuzumab treatment and is characterized by alternating hyper- and hypothyroidism. Both remission rates and the prevalence of TED were lower than those reported for conventional GD. Pregnancies were uncomplicated and GD was associated with a lower risk of subsequent MS activity. Next article from Neurology. Association between hippocampal volumes and cognition in cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Background and objectives. Accumulating evidence suggests that gray matter atrophy, often considered a marker of Alzheimer disease (AD), can also result from cerebral small vessel disease (CSVD). Cerebral amyloid angiopathy (CAA) is a form of sporadic CSVD diagnosed through neuroimaging criteria that often co-occurs with AD pathology and leads to cognitive impairment. We sought to identify the role of hippocampal integrity in the development of cognitive impairment in a cohort of patients with possible and probable CAA. Methods Patients were recruited from an ongoing CAA study at Massachusetts General Hospital. Composite scores defined performance in the cognitive domains of memory, language, executive function, and processing speed. Hippocampal subfields volumes were measured from 3T MRI, using an automated method, and multivariate linear regression models were used to estimate their association with each cognitive domain and in relationship to CAA-related neuroimaging markers. Results 120 patients, 36 with possible, age mean range, 75.6, 65.6 to 88.9, 67 with probable CAA, 75.9, 59.0 to 94.0 and 17 controls without cognitive impairment and CSVD, 72.4, 62.5 to 82.7, 76.4% female patients, were included in this study. We found a positive association between all investigated hippocampal subfields and memory and language, whereas specific subfields accounted for executive function, CA4, estimate equals 5.43, 95% 95% C1.26 to 9.61, P equals 0.020. Subiculum, estimate equals 2.85, 95% C0.67 to 5.02, P equals 0.022. And processing speed? Subiculum, estimate equals 1.99, 95% C0.13 to 3.85, P equals 0.036. These findings were independent of other CAA-related markers, which did not have an influence on cognition in this cohort. Peak Width of Skeletonized Mean Diffusivity, TSND, a measure of white matter integrity, was negatively associated with hippocampal subfields volumes, CA3, estimate equals minus 0.012, 95% C minus 0.020 to minus 0.004, p equals 0.034, c a 4, estimate equals minus 0.010, 95% c minus 0.020 to minus 0.0007, p equals 0.037, subiculum, estimate equals minus 0.019, 95% c minus 0.042 to minus 0.0001, p equals 0.003. Discussion These results suggest that hippocampal integrity is an independent contributor to cognitive impairment in patients with CAA and that it might be related to loss of integrity in the white matter. Further studies exploring potential causes and directionality of the relationship between white matter and hippocampal integrity may be warranted. Next article from CHEST. Clinical response and remission in patients with severe asthma treated with biologic therapies. Background. The development of novel targeted biologic therapies for severe asthma has provided an opportunity to consider remission a new treatment goal. Research question. How many patients with severe asthma treated with biologic therapy achieve clinical remission and what predicts response to treatment? Study design and methods. The Danish Severe Asthma Register is a nationwide cohort including all adult patients receiving biologic therapy for severe asthma in Denmark. This observational cohort study defined clinical response to treatment following 12 months as a greater than or equal to 50% reduction in exacerbations and or a greater than or equal to 50% reduction in maintenance oral corticosteroid dose, if required. Clinical remission was defined by cessation of exacerbations and maintenance oral corticosteroids, as well as a normalization of lung function, FEV1 greater than 80%, and a 6-question asthma control questionnaire score less than or equal to 1.5 following 12 months of treatment. Results Following 12 months of treatment, 104, 21% of 501 biologic-naive patients had no response to treatment, and 397, 79%, had a clinical response. Among the latter, 97, 24%, fulfilled the study criteria of clinical remission, corresponding to 19% of the entire population. Remission was predicted by shorter duration of disease and lower BMI in the entire population of patients treated with biologic therapy. Interpretation Clinical response was achieved in most adult patients initiating biologic therapy, and clinical remission was observed in 19% of the patients following 12 months of treatment. Further studies are required to assess the long-term outcome of achieving clinical remission with biologic therapy. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Association between T2-related comorbidities and effectiveness of biologics in severe asthma. Rationale Previous studies investigating the impact of comorbidities on the effectiveness of biologic agents have been relatively small and of short duration, and have not compared classes of biologic agents. Objectives To determine the association between type 2 related comorbidities and biologic agent effectiveness in adults with severe asthma, SA. Methods This cohort study used international severe asthma registry data from 21 countries, 2017 to 2022. To quantify changes in four outcomes before and after biologic therapy: annual asthma exacerbation rate, FEV1 percent predicted, asthma control, and long-term oral corticosteroid daily dose in patients with or without allergic rhinitis, chronic rhinosinusitis (CRS) with or without nasal polyps (NPs), NPs or eczema/atopic dermatitis. Measurements and main results of 1,765 patients, 1,257. 421, and 87 initiated anti-IL-5-5 receptor, anti-IGA, and anti-IL-4-13 therapies, respectively. In general, pre-versus post-biologic therapy improvements were noted in all four asthma outcomes assessed, irrespective of comorbidity status. However, patients with comorbid CRS with or without NPs experienced 23% fewer exacerbations per year, 95% C, 10-35%. to p less than 0.001, and had 59% higher odds of better post-biologic therapy asthma control, 95% c, 26-102%, to 102%, p less than 0.001, than those without CRS with or without NPs. Similar estimates were noted for those with comorbid NPs, 22% fewer exacerbations and 56% higher odds of better post-biologic therapy control. Patients with SA and CRS with or without NPs had an additional FEV 1% predicted improvement of 3.2%, 95% C, 1.0 to 5.3, P equals 0.004, a trend that was also noted in those with comorbid NPs. The presence of allergic rhinitis or atopic dermatitis was not associated with post-biologic therapy effect for any outcome assessed. Conclusions, these findings highlight the importance of systematic comorbidity evaluation. The presence of CRS with or without NPs or NPs alone may be considered a predictor of the effectiveness of biologic agents in patients with SA. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology Real-world efficacy of dupilumab in severe, treatment refractory, and fibrostenotic patients with eosinophilic esophagitis. Background and aims Dupilumab is approved for treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis, O, but real-world data are lacking. We aim to determine the real-world efficacy of dupilumab in patients with severe, treatment refractory, and fibrostenotic O. Methods we conducted a retrospective cohort study of O patients prescribed dupilumab and who were treatment refractory to standard modalities. Patient demographics, clinical characteristics, O history, and procedural data, including the histologically worst pre and post-dupilumab endoscopies, were extracted from medical records. Symptomatic, endoscopic, and histologic responses were assessed for the worst and pre-dupilumab endoscopies compared with the post-dupilumab endoscopy. Results We identified 46 patients with refractory fibrostenotic O who were treated with dupilumab. Patients showed endoscopic, histologic, and symptomatic improvement on dupilumab compared with both the worst and the pre-dupalumab esophage The peak eosinophil counts decreased markedly. And post-dupalumab histologic response rates were 80% and 57% for fewer than 15 eosinophils per high power field and 6 or fewer eosinophils per high power field, respectively, and the endoscopic reference score decreased from 5.01 to 1.89, p less than 0.001 for all. Although the proportion of strictures was stable, there was a significant increase in the predilation esophageal diameter from 13.9 to 16.0 millimeters. P less than 0.001. Global symptom improvement was reported in 91%. P less than 0.001. Conclusions In this population of severe, refractory, and fibrostenotic O patients, most achieved histologic, endoscopic, and symptom improvement with a median of six months of depilumab, and esophageal stricture diameter improved. Depilumab has real world efficacy for a severe O population most of whom would not have qualified for prior clinical trials. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Regional citrate anticoagulation versus no anticoagulation for CKRT in patients with liver failure with increased bleeding risk. Background The opinions on the efficacy and safety of no anticoagulation versus regional citrate anticoagulation for continuous KRT, CKRT, were controversial in patients with severe liver failure with a higher bleeding risk. We performed a randomized controlled trial to assess no anticoagulation versus regional citrate anticoagulation for CKRT in these patients. Methods Adult patients with liver failure with a higher bleeding risk who required CKRT were considered candidates. The included participants were randomized to receive regional citrate anticoagulation or no anticoagulation CKRT. The primary endpoint was filter failure. Results Of the included participants, 44 and 45 were randomized to receive regional citrate anticoagulation and no anticoagulation CKRT, respectively. The no-anticoagulation group had a significantly higher filter failure rate, 25, 56%, versus 12, 27%, p equals 0.003, which was confirmed by cumulative incidence function analysis and sensitive analysis including only the first CKRT sessions. In the cumulative incidence function analysis, the cumulative filter failure rates at 24, 48, and 72 hours of the no anticoagulation and regional citrate anticoagulation groups were 31%, 58%, and 76% and 11%, 23%, and 35%, respectively. Participants in the regional citrate anticoagulation group had significantly higher incidences of Ca2 plus tot, Ca2 plus ion greater than 2.5, 7% versus 57%, p less than 0.001, hypocalcemia 51% versus 82% p equals 0.002 and severe hypocalcemia 13% versus 77% p less than 0.001 however most 73% of the increased ca2 plus tot ca2 plus ion ratios were normalized after the upregulation of the calcium substitution rate In the regional citrate anticoagulation group, there was no significant additional increase in the systemic citrate concentration after six hours. Conclusions For patients with liver failure with a higher bleeding risk who required CKRT, regional citrate anticoagulation resulted in significantly longer filter lifespan than no anticoagulation. However, regional citrate anticoagulation in patients with liver failure was associated with a significantly higher risk of hypocalcemia. Severe hypocalcemia, and CA2 plus TOT, CA2 plus Ion greater than (music) 2.5 Next article is from Kidney International Reports Implementation of the ASCENT trial to improve transplant waitlisting access Introduction The Allocation System for Changes in Equity in Kidney Transplantation, ASCENT, study was a hybrid type 1 trial of a multi-component intervention among 655 U.S. dialysis facilities with low kidney transplant waitlisting to educate staff and patients about kidney allocation system, KAS, changes and increase access to and reduce racial disparities in waitlisting. Intervention components included a staff webinar, patient and staff educational videos, and facility-specific feedback reports. Methods Implementation outcomes were assessed using the REACH, Effectiveness, Adoption, Implementation, and Maintenance Framework. Post-implementation surveys were administered among intervention group facilities, and equals 334, interviews were conducted with facility staff, N equals 6. High implementation was defined as using three to four intervention components, low implementation as using one to two components, and non-implementation as using no components. Results. A total of 331, 99%, facilities completed the survey, 57% were high implementers, 31% were low implementers, and 12% were non-implementers. Waitlisting events were higher or similar among high versus low implementer facilities for incident and prevalent populations. For black incident patients, The mean proportion weight listed in low implementer facilities was 0.80%, 95% confidence interval, c, 0.73 to 0.87, at baseline and 0.55% at one year, 95% c, 0.48 to 0.62, versus 0.83%, 95% c, 0.78 to 0.88, at baseline and 1.40% at one year, 95% 95% C 1.35 to 1.45 in high implementer facilities. Interviews revealed that the intervention helped facilities prioritize transplant education, but that intervention components were not uniformly shared. Conclusion The findings provide important context to interpret ascent effectiveness results and identify key barriers and facilitators to consider for future modification and scale-up of multi-level multi-component interventions in dialysis settings. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.